I just had the best class. I'm like the Jedi Master of Math. Susie just threw up everywhere. The smell. Hey, can you sub for me next Wednesday? Excuse me, young man, but students are not allowed in here. What's for lunch today? Leftovers from last night. Hey, coach, is there a game tonight? I had to take away three phones today. I'm exhausted. Shh, shh. The principal's coming. You're now in the teacher's lounge. How's it going, Internet World? My name is Micah Hirokawa, and right beside me is my co-host, Mr. Brian Clark. We are both educators at Syracuse Arts Academy, located in beautiful Utah. Each month, we bring you the Teacher's Lounge, a podcast dedicated to all educators. And that means parents as well, because you are your child's first teacher. In the lounge today, we have Cinda Whipple, our junior high social studies teacher here at Syracuse Arts Academy, on Antelope Drive. Good morning, Cinda, and how are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. Fantastic. To get things started, let's shoot things over to Brian as he shares a little background about Cinda and sets the stage for our conversation today. Today, we get to sit down with Cinda Whipple, and I think secretly, Micah is the most excited for this episode because not so secretly, both him and Cinda are history nerds. Woohoo! <laughs> yeah! Cinda grew up in Magna, Utah, in farm country. She attended BYU and earned her associates from UVU in legal assisting. She went back and graduated from BYU with a Bachelor of Arts in History and worked in legal assisting for some time. Cinda has loved history ever since she can remember. She was inspired by her mother as a very young girl and gained a love and appreciation for Israel and ancient Egypt. Cinda has two daughters and one stepdaughter. Her oldest is 27 and her youngest both are 25 and are both named Madison. (laughs) Cinda is also married to our very own Tim Whipple, who is um, a school legend here at Syracuse (laughs) Arts Academy. Um, We're excited to have Cinda. Cinda went back to Weber State University in order to earn her teaching credentials and started in the classroom. Eventually, Cinda received her master's degree in curriculum development from Concordia University, and Cinda has been everywhere in the classroom. She's taught special ed for five years, she taught math, English, geography, history, and she's teaching Utah studies. And so Cinda really, really knows what she's doing. We're excited to have Cinda with us today. <laughs> Thank you. You've done a lot of things. And you you and Tim just got back from a really big trip. Is that right? Yes, we went to Greece over Thanksgiving. Wow. What was your favorite part about that trip? He let me plan it, and we went to all the old places. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of history. You're now, like a built-in tour guide, Cinda. Tim is yeah. lucky. <laughs> yeah, he is. But he is a bit of a rascal. Yes. Mr. Tim Whipple. Mm-hmm. So how did you get him to not touch the old things? Um, I just walked away. <laughs> I, I let him touch things and I just pretended I didn't see it happening. <laughs> Cinda shared with me that um, before her and Tim were together, she dressed up for the Salem witch trials as a witch. And oh Tim took her picture and changed his school ID so that it had her picture on it. (laughs) And for two weeks, she didn't notice. He wore it every day faithfully. (laughs) And I should have noticed because he never wears it. But yeah. Yeah. Well, I I think they're a power couple because they make up two of the best subjects on earth, I biasly say. (laughs) Mr. Whipple, he's our band teacher and guitar teacher, which I, you know, have such a love for band and and music ensembles. And then, of course, as a as a former um, DPAP history teacher, I just 
I just love history. So the two of them, I think I could speak with them for hours and hours and hours. But unfortunately, our podcast is only 45 minutes to an hour. So I'm sure I'll be doing a lot of editing on this. <laughs> well, to get things started, um, we want to ask you, you, you've definitely had a lot of time in the classroom. You've definitely worked with all different types of students. I want you to go back to that time when you were deciding to become a teacher or when you were growing up as a student, who are those individuals that inspired you, who motivated you or lit that fire in you to really jump into education? Okay, so Brian mentioned my mom. Um, at home, we my dad lived in Ireland for a time and my mom lived in Israel for a time. And back then it was slides. So we would watch a lot of their um, slideshows. And my mom, while she was in Israel, got to go to Jordan and Egypt. And I just really loved the really old things that she had pictures of. Um, my dad was, it was much more modern pictures of him on whales that had washed up on the beach and things like that. So, um, but my mom just talked to me about everything as we were little, as we were growing up. And she had these beautiful picture books with like pirates in them. And, and they were real history books, not... Wow. Just made up stories. And so we would go through those. Um, and then she was also a counselor at a high school. Actually, she ended up being a counselor at my high school after I left it. Um, and so just always education. Um, she was always learning, part of a book club, always inspiring us to learn. And so um, it just had a really like fertile background, I guess. And then when I went to school, the first history assignment I remember was writing a report on Harriet Tubman in third grade. And, <laughs> and I was hooked. I found all these books and I found all this information and I loved it. And from then on, um, one summer I spent reading uh, the diary of Anne Frank. And I would always spend two weeks at my grandparents and in the barn, I would pretend to be Anne Frank hiding in the attic. And so just always, it's just always appealed to me. Um, then in high school, I had an amazing AP U.S. history teacher, Mr. Jones, and his room, every wall that didn't have a window had a double chalkboard on it so he could move his boards. And wow. he would just put names and events in a list and he would just talk. And we would take notes and he was telling stories and he was acting them out and he had kind of the old man comb over thing and he's <laughs> having sword fights up there and his hair's flying everywhere. And I was like, this is so cool. I want to do this. So, Wow. You know, um, you mentioned your parents. You know, today I think a lot of students have a hard time connecting with their parents, but it sounds like you had a really great relationship with your parents. Um, What's some advice that you can remember back or some things that your parents did so that you felt comfortable talking with them and engaging in um, in scholarly discussions and, and talking about history? I mean, that's not the most fun topic. I can't imagine any of our students yeah. going home and being like, Mom, pull out the old history book. Let me look at old things. Let's talk about this. <laughs> I mean, there's bound to have been um, some things that your parents did to cultivate that level of trust. Um, I think just they were always there for me um, and in different ways. So my mom stayed at home with us until I was in junior high and was probably my best friend growing up. Um, just She was just always there for me. She would listen and not make judgments. I could tell her things. I could tell on myself and not get in trouble. Um, and she would help me work through things and see what I had done wrong or what I could improve on. Um and my dad made all that possible by working three jobs. 
So I didn't see him a whole lot. Um, but like I said, we had those slideshows of Ireland and, and when he was home, he would tell stories. And, um, my relationship with my dad probably centers more around football. Um, (laughs) (laughs) he's a big BYU fan and he had season tickets to the football games and from the time I was little, at least one game a season, I would go down with him because my mom didn't really love the games, <laughs> but she went because that's what you do when you're married. And um, then as I started having children, my mom finally said, look, you know, I sit at these games and read books. You know, I don't care. I have these two little girls I want to go hang out with, take Cinda to the football games. And so from that time on, and when I was at school at BYU, they would meet me at the games and stuff. So with my dad, it was more sports related. Um, but my mom, because my dad worked so hard, my mom was there and able to develop a friendship with me. So That's awesome. It sounds like there was a lot of quality exposure mm-hmm. to parents. And I think sometimes parents are really afraid to have quality time with their kids anymore. I think it's really easy to put an iPad in a student's hand or if they're playing their video games to be off doing something separate. There's a lot of separation between parents and kids. And what I'm hearing is that there was a lot of quality exposure, even with your dad, even though he was working three jobs, when he was there, he was present. You guys were engaged with each other. You're talking and you're having conversations with each other. And I think that's I think that's such a powerful thing that I think we're lacking. And I think even myself, I'm guilty that sometimes I come home and maybe it's not even my kids that are plugged in, but I have a tendency to plug in because I want to unwind for my day. And so I have to take make that extra effort to have quality exposure with my children. And I think that is that's pretty cool. And it's a really good reminder for for our parents today. Yeah. And I think sometimes Um, obviously I'm not a parent, but even in my own situation, trying to connect with students, I think sometimes we worry about the means by which we're going to cultivate a relationship. Like, oh, what is it that I can use in order to connect with this child? But I think like Micah said, more important than that is just time, spending time with these kids and not worrying so much, oh, what are we going to talk about? Or what am I going to use to connect with them? But just being with them. Yes, and being authentic mm-hmm. when we're with them, being who we are. In the first couple of weeks of class, the first thing my kids learn about me is I'm a nerd. Mm-hmm. And, and I say it frequently, I'm a nerd. They'll come in and say, are we doing anything fun today? And I just look at them and say, I think everything we do is fun. <laughs> I, I, you're asking the wrong person. I, I think taking notes is fun. Mm-hmm. Like So um, I think just being authentic in who we are and yeah. being... Um, consistent Absolutely. so they know they can count on us yeah. to behave in a certain way when something happens totally yeah. Micah's a firm believer that everyone's a nerd <laughs> yeah ends. yeah we, it, you know that that's the normal it's the ones that aren't <laughs> um, when we think about your teacher that you had whose um, comb over was flying everywhere and there were sword fights happening and I'm just super stoked on the idea that he had writing surfaces all around the room. I mean, that's amazing. Um, The next question that we have for you is when talking to teachers or even parents, we're thinking about student engagement, how to engage our kids. And I hear being present and and being consistent is one thing that your your parents did well, but there's bound to be more than that. You know, there's bound to be these out-of-the-box ways to connect to children. So could you share with us maybe two or three strategies, tips, tricks, hacks 
that you use on a daily basis? So one thing about me that I got from my mom is I'm a learner. I'm constantly learning. And so I never feel comfortable with where I'm at. I'll never teach the, a class the same way twice. Um, geography is going to look completely different this semester than it did last semester um, because I've learned. I've learned more and I want to add more. And one of the areas I've really been looking at is that student engagement because, like I said, I like to take notes and I like to tell stories. And so I would be happy if that's all we did in class. But the world has moved on and that doesn't grab kids anymore. And so... Um, one of the things I'm really working on is to talk with the kids, not at the kids. Huh. So there are days you have to do direct instruction, but if you turn it into a discussion and you validate their viewpoints, they'll begin to discuss with you more often once they realize you're not going to make fun of them or if they answer incorrectly, you can say, well, I see where you would get that and then move on. Once they feel comfortable, they're going to discuss with you. And then it's a lot less lecture and a lot more discussion. Um, another thing, I've been listening to a podcast. There's a podcast that a couple of history teachers do. And they're big on curiosity. If we can get the kids curious, then they'll be engaged. And so um, one of the activities that I keep in U.S. history that I have done for years and years and years is the Boston Massacre. I teach it um, like they're investigating it. And so they take notes on what they think actually happened. And then we move to the trial phase and they're the jury and they take notes on what the witnesses are saying. And then at the end, they have to decide how would they have ruled in the case. And I used to when I had the kids every day and had more minutes, I used to do a debate with them. Um, now we just discuss it. But the year, the, the first three years I did it, we did a debate. And, of course, being a mom of one of the kids in that group gave me some great insight. That debate went on to Facebook, which was brand new back then, and lasted for a couple months. The kids wow. were back and forth with each other over it. So things like that, um, just trying to create curiosity in them. Because sometimes history is hard for kids. They're not super interested in a long time ago. So. Yeah. That, that's amazing. I, I love the idea of coming at student engagement by way of curiosity. I think too often we're in the classroom and we're not saying, so what do you think about that? But that's not the real question. The real question is, is so what do you really think about that? You know, to, to ask the question again, sometimes when we ask teenagers or, or, or our, our youth, you know, what do you think about that? Usually you're just going to get a surface answer like, fine, I'm, I'm okay, you know, like, but if you take the time to go into the next question, which is putting that emphasis on really, then they really feel like you're invested in their answer. You know, what do you really think about that? Or be like a toddler. Why? I ask that a lot. Why do you think that? Why would you say that? Why? So, yeah. Um, and another thing that you can do with history is make it relevant. So when we're talking about a war or something, I'll talk about how many of you have siblings and you're getting in a fight, you're in a car forever and ever and ever, and they keep putting their feet on you. Who gets in trouble? The one who's putting their feet on the person or the person who smacks the one with their feet on them. And that brings real life to them. And they're like, oh, now I see why it happened that way. I think making it relevant is also tricky, though, because for all of us, you know, um, I'm 46 right now. And making it relevant, sometimes I think I'm biased in my 
my attempts to make things relevant. So I say, well, I remember when I was a teenager, you know, I thought this, or I remember when I, but honestly, when I was a teenager, it's very different than what it means to be a teenager now. And I think sometimes for us as adults, when we're trying to really connect with students and, and we want to make things relevant to them, we don't take the time to research what is relevant. And I think for us, and I would even say, even, even for someone like Brian, who is in his 20s, um, he can't say that he completely understands what these kids are going through. He was never a teenager during a major pandemic or COVID or what it feels like to be isolated and then come out of that isolation and then be in this world now. I mean, I think relevancy really takes research on our behalf. Um, it's just not something that we can immediately say. And, and you know, they will see right through that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> They'll know when we're faking um, this connection to them. Oh, yeah, I, I get what you're saying. A lot of times I ask. Sure. We watched um, the student news, so CNN 10 um, in geography, and I just kind of, it was a great episode for what I was trying to do. I was trying to show them how geography is different from history. And they talked about the population growth decline in China, and they talked about the avian flu that's causing all of the shortage for eggs. And so we talked about, I talked, I'd stop it and pause it. And, um, I asked them, why do you think population is declining in China? Why do, what do you think is happening? They had great answers. And, you know, we talked about the law that used to be in place where they could only have one child. And they said, don't you think that made it culturally unacceptable to have more than one child? And, you know, and then we talked about, I asked them, do any of you have older siblings who are finishing up college and starting their careers. And they said, yeah. And I said, things are changing. When I was that age, we bought a house. Yeah. Can your older siblings do that now? And the kids yeah. were like, no. no. <laughs> and I said, so if you're living in a two bedroom apartment, do you want to have a baby? And they're like, no, that's crowded. And so just asking them and, um, it, it was really great. I love asking them because then they're free to tell me what's relevant to them. The more times in that I spend with people who have been in education for a really long time and have been in the classroom for a long time, the more that I realize that, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like a good teacher is, one, always a lifelong learner, and two, is a really, really good listener. And they spend a lot of time listening in the classroom. Um, yeah. And so thank you for saying that. Yeah. Um, one thing I've noticed too, we get in a hurry. We have our agenda. We have mm -hmm. things we want to cover. And I'll go home. And when things slow down, I'm like, oh my gosh, that child said that. And tomorrow I need to find them in the hall and make sure they're okay. Mm -hmm. Because in the rush of the classroom, I didn't hear what that really meant. Mm -hmm. And so there are times where I'll just check on kids. Are you okay? Is everything good? Because later, it penetrates why they asked that question or why they said that. Um, so it's okay if in the rush of the day, we don't hear what they're saying as long as we follow up when we realize what they've said. Um, and the same goes true. We're human and we, we make mistakes and we may offend somebody. And I'll be the first to pull a child aside and say, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And I hope it didn't offend you. Um, and I think that helps them learn how to deal with each other as well and make connections, real connections with each other when they're able to listen mm -hmm. and respond and genuinely apologize when they know they've done something they shouldn't have. Yeah. And that's authentic, too. Yeah, I love the idea of, 
of pushing the ego away. You know, I think as teachers, you know, just the idea of the word teacher sometimes lends itself to being an expert, you know, but what I hear is some real authentic humility. Um, and I think when students realize that you're, you're learning along with them, you know, it opens up a whole nother layer of vulnerability in the classroom, which I think is amazing. Now, Cinda, you've been a teacher in a lot of different scenarios. <laughs> I, I can imagine. I think maybe you may have taught in most classrooms in this building. <laughs> um, I've either taught or sat in and watched amazing teachers teach so I could help support them. So, sure, yeah. sure. But you've bound to have seen some, some things. I mean, one of the things we learned just recently in our professional development is a high level of engagement has to come from having a good sense of humor mm -hmm. and having a lot of fun. When we had Art Hansen on the show um, just a little while back, the principal of the junior high, he said his classroom was a loud classroom. <laughs> um, so looking back on your career, um, is there a is there a particular moment or a story that that just tickles you or that you just find hilarious? You look back on that and you're like, that was fun. Um, maybe not hilarious so much, but um, validated why I was in teaching for okay. sure. Um, so way back when, I used to do mock congressional hearings with my eighth graders. So they would spend part of a term. Um, looking at a constitutional issue and investigating it, and they would write an essay on it. And then they would present that essay to a panel of adults that they had never met before. I had uh, city council members come in and parents volunteer, but I made sure the parents didn't have a, a student that the kids would be hanging out with. So it was strangers. They were, they were presenting to strangers, and then they would put their paper under their table and they would have to answer questions, just like you would in a congressional hearing. And, you know... It's all hypothetical when you're writing the paper and everything's fine. The day of the hearing, they would come in dressed all professionally <laughs> and ready for this thing. And one of my students that I was uh, fairly close with, she was the vice president of the student body at that time, and, and I ran student government. So we spent a lot of time together, came in, and she said, I am so nervous. Uh. I don't want to do this. And I said, it's going to be fantastic. <laughs> you're going to be great. And... Um, so she went in and they were in there for maybe 15 minutes and she came out and she's like, how do I do this every day? <laughs> and I kind of chuckled and I said, well, really find a debate team to be on. We didn't have one at that time, but I find a debate team to be on. Mm -hmm. um, take a lot of classes in interpersonal communication and writing. And when you go to college, look into becoming a lawyer. And, mm -hmm. and, and then you go and, and you work for these interest groups and you address Congress all the time. And in the meantime, you can look for projects in the city and talk to the city council and those kinds of things. And I ran into her a couple of summers ago and she had just finished up her undergrad work at the U, and she had been on the debate team that whole time. She was looking into going to law school, and um, she's currently coaching the forensics team at uh, the University of Utah. Wow. So I was like, oh, so cool. And that wasn't me. That was her. She rose to the challenge, and she was like, I'm going to do this. And then she realized she loved it. And so I think the more opportunities we can just provide for our yeah. students to find something they love. And that's what brings me joy. So I, yeah. yeah, I don't really 
I mean, there are things that make me laugh, but they're probably not appropriate for this. So <laughs> I wouldn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No. But, yeah. um, but truly, the things that make me smile are things like that. Yeah, yeah. our student successes mm-hmm. where we feel, where we see. I mean, it's so hard to think, you know, when you see these kiddos coming through the hallways or they're sitting, they're sitting in your office, you know, me as the assistant principal, they're sitting here and knowing that these are going to be world changers. And when that time really comes, and I, and I, and I talked to Brian about this, you know, there is that moment, you know, when you're in this career long enough and then you run into that student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awesome. That is what really brings a smile to your face. Yeah. I mean, that's the, that's what makes it all worth it. Yeah. You know, um, with that, I think sometimes the most unlikely rise to the occasion mm-hmm. you know sometimes the the student that you would never think I, I and I was that student <laughs> I, I my student teaching was done at the elementary school that I I graduated from and I went back and the teacher the there was one teacher still working there that was there when I was there and she about had a heart attack. <laughs> Keeled she, over. Yeah when she found <laughs> out that Micah Hirokawa became a teacher and then later became became a principal she just she's just about died (laughs) (laughs) so so this next question kind of aids to parents you know I think sometimes parents get into that desperate place where they have a struggling student and they just you know they're at a loss they're just you know they're just reaching for air they're just reaching for the surface they're just trying to make it another day with this kiddo and I, I probably was that kid what advice do you have with parents who have struggling students? Um, first of all, start working on your relationship. Be in a space where your student can tell you why they're struggling. Um, every student that struggles has a different reason for struggling, and it's not always ability. There are a lot of factors playing into our students' lives these days. Um, it's way more complicated than when I was in junior high. And... Um, just being there and finding out what makes your student tick. When I was in junior high, I was terribly, terribly shy. Um, I had my little group of friends and that's who I talked to. And my mom was like, why are you every morning? I don't want to go to school. I I just don't, I don't want to go. Why you love to learn. Can you just teach me at home? I don't want to go to school. And so she started giving me assignments. I want you to find three new people at school today that you look in the eye and you smile at and say hi. I want you to have a conversation with somebody today that's not in your tight little friend group. And she didn't just make the assignments. When I came home, I had to tell her about them, if I'd succeeded or not. And because of that, by the time I got to high school, I was able to step outside my safety zone, my comfort zone, and talk to people Um because she supported me in that. But first she had to find out why. Why didn't I want to be there? And the next really important thing is have them in school, even if they come kicking and screaming and fighting. They may not pass the class, but they'll hear the instruction and they're still learning. And they're still having social interactions with their friends. They're able to make friends. They're with a a group of peers and learning how to socialize. And they're also learning how to socialize with adults. There's so much more that goes on here than just... I'm going to pass geography. And so make sure they come to school and then talk to the teacher. If, if there's one teacher in particular or if it's all the teachers, there's not a teacher in this building that does not want their students to succeed and wouldn't love your insight into how we can reach them and help them and support them. And then finally, when they're brave enough, the three of you need to meet. 
the parent, the teacher, and the student, and you need to help support your student in speaking to the teacher and, and voicing what their struggle is. That, that's one of the best answers to this question that I've, I've heard thus far on this show. That, um, and I really like it because you eliminated the excuses. I think for parents, sometimes um, we say, well, I've got so much anxiety or I'm so busy or I work three jobs or, or my kid is just so disrespectful or the teacher, the teacher just sucks or this school is terrible. And there's so many excuses that we can use as parents. But what I'm hearing, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but this is what this is what's in my brain right now. It can be your fault as the parent. Like there has to be some level of accountability that you have to take as a parent if your student is struggling. And honestly, a lot of kids are really having a hard time at school because they don't, their attendance is poor. Mm -hmm. And I gotta, I gotta be honest with our public attendance. It's terrible that we have to have kids um, be penalized because of poor attendance or we or they get in trouble because of poor attendance. I never ever scold a kid as an administrator um, because they're doing bad in school because they have poor attendance. If they have poor attendance and they're in the junior high, they don't have a license. They're not driving themselves. Mm-hmm. This is a parent issue. Very much. Honestly and truly. And so it's it's a crying shame when we are um, holding kids accountable. For doing poorly in school because they're not in school. No, that's a parent problem. And so this is the first time I'm hearing like, yeah, you know, drop the excuses. You are just as accountable for you. Put your big boy pants on. Mm-hmm. You know, when you become a parent, there's there are these luxuries that you can't afford to have in your life. You can't afford to to wuss out. You, you, you can't be having nervous breakdowns. You can't, you can't be so stressed out. You, you know, that, that's the commitment you make in bringing a life into, into this world. I mean, the, I, I just know the second I held my daughter, I knew my first, my first child, when I held her, I knew my entire world would be, would be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like to say once a mom, always a mom. Um, my oldest is talking, they're talking about, maybe having a baby someday. I don't know. She's like, mom, (laughs) like five years. And then she's like, no, I don't want to have one. And, and going back and forth. And I finally just said, you know what? You two need to sit down and decide if you want this, because once you have a baby, you are always a mom. I'm still a mom. I don't see my girls every day. I don't talk to them every day, but I think about them every day, several times a day. Um, and, and I'm concerned for them and I want them to do well all the time. They, there's just a part of you that's always a parent forever, even when they leave your nest. So um, one more thing I think parents really need to be aware of is their attitude toward education. If they're downplaying education at home or unsupportive, I know you have homework, but we have this, this, and this we have to do. So you're just going to have to put the homework aside. Um, I, I think that they need to show support 
for that education. And if they're concerned about the amount of homework they're getting, again, talk to your student. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I try to make sure that the bulk of my assignments can be done in class. Mm-hmm. But if students aren't using their time well, it becomes homework. So find out. Can you help them maximize their time at school so there's less for them to do at home? And ev- never, ever, ever, ever say, when will you ever use this again? Um So I have had several students say to me, when am I ever going to use algebra? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, all the time. I use it to figure out whether a piece of furniture is going to fit in a room. I use it to figure out what size blinds to buy. You're going to use it all the time. Have you ever baked cookies? Yeah, you know, so and that's the one I hear the most. When am I ever going to use what I'm learning in math just this week? And I was like, well, if you go into advertising, you're going to use functions. If you go into any kind of research, you're going to use functions. You just don't know yet when you'll use it. So There are a few things also that really resonate there with me. And I think that's really valid, especially now. I think education is taking a lot of heat. Um, and so we need to be careful about the way we speak about that at home. But I like what you first mentioned Um, Cinda, is that trusting that our students and understanding that they're self-aware enough that they know what's going on. You know, they they know what's going on with themselves, but that doesn't take away from the fact that we are still the parent and we dictate what happens. And so there's there's a healthy line there with understanding, okay, my child is self-aware and they can understand what's happening, but they don't get to be in charge. Um, and also that there's so much more that happens at school. You know, as an educator, when I think of schooling, I, I really don't think of what we sit down and learn about in the classroom. I think of all of those moments that happen in between when students are coming in the room at lunch and just socializing and those things. There's so much learning that happens. That's awesome. We're talking about, you know, this idea of bringing kids into this world. I think that's come up. You know, and that's a scary thing. And it's great to be in a business where we'll always have job security because there's always kids <laughs> that <laughs> need true. to go to school, <laughs> you know. But but with that comes a heavy responsibility. And Brian talks about how education is getting a lot of heat right now and so on. What are your some of your thoughts of what education looks like right now? And ultimately, what are your hopes for education in the future? Um. There are a couple of things uh, that are hard in education for teachers right now. And one of those things is the high stakes testing. Um, it really dictates. I, I don't know. I'm in a core mm-hmm. subject, but not a tested subject. So I'm not as, um, I don't know, I don't feel as pressured as mm-hmm. like English or sure. science or math where I they have these big end of level tests and they've got to cover all of this stuff because it might be on the test and there's not really time to, to stop and to slow down and to teach something really deeply that could be super meaningful for our students. Right. Um, and even though I'm not tested, I have this giant curriculum in U.S. history. How do we get through everything we can't. And so you have to pick and choose what's going to be most useful for your students. And I would like to see us turn away from the high stakes testing or maybe modify it into something much more manageable so that teachers can teach so that we can spend that time when we know somebody's not getting the subject to be able to slow down and say, let's spend a week extra here. We need to talk about this longer 
or let's reteach this this subject instead yeah. of in the back of our mind, if I take that week, we're not going to cover this and right. I know it's going to be on the test. Right. Um, so that's one thing I would like to see change. Um, but the core of education stays the same. We get to work with children. We get to work with teens. We get to work with people who are developing into themselves and we get to help them choose who they're going to be. And I think that's amazing. I think that's really fun. And as long as we can keep sight of that, the time pressures in our own heads with curriculum and end of year and all of that kind of stuff needs to take a back seat. I love that. I have um, one of my teaching professors um, has a PhD in teaching and he gets up and he has like a little inspiring moment at the end of every class. And so at the end of our semester, he got up and he said, you know, teaching really is one of the last noble professions that exists in the world today. And he said, um, don't take that lightly. Like you are shaping people's lives and you really are, whether you think you are or not or whether you feel you go home and you think, oh, I made no difference today. You are really, really shaping these children's lives. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, it's a little bit tricky. I think of the the musical Wicked <laughs> and there's... There's you can tell Mike is a music person. <laughs> I'm a music guy. But there's a song in the musical Wicked wicked that says um i have been changed for good and that's a tricky song because i have been changed for good could mean that i have been changed for the better it could also mean that whatever change has happened to me is permanent and so i think i'm hearing those words from your professor kind of puts a lot of anxiety in me to be honest (laughs) sure it's the last noble profession because we have the stewardship of influencing children and they will be changed for good. Mm -hmm. Does that mean they will be changed for the better? Be careful with our words, be careful with our interactions because the weight of that is heavy. It is. I will be changed for good. What does that mean? It means I will be changed for permanent. Mm -hmm. And, and we have that responsibility. And so to me, um, sometimes I think I walk through those doors and I feel the weight of that. You know, the discussions, the words, the conversations I'll have with students. Um, will that be one of those moments where they are changed for good? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And as a, as a new teacher, that has been, I think, something that I... Um, have really learned like it's been a slow progression but the more time I spend with these kids the more I feel that pressure and that responsibility um yeah so I guess with all those pressures of being a teacher (laughs) (laughs) I mean it it is it this I I've said this I'm I guess this is almost becoming redundant but this is a hard job this is a hard job one time I put up and no no offense to people that do this but I did vinyl siding in the winter in Utah um, at $15 an hour. And and that was a hard job. But I, I learned how to do it. And I could do it every day. And I just had to survive it. Mm-hmm. But being a teacher is more than surviving. This is not a job for wimps. Every day you come ready to work as hard as you possibly can. And we talked earlier just before we got on air um, about the idea that... Um, we, you have to turn yourself off because it's a job that can consume you. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
we have teachers who are struggling. We have teachers who are getting to that place. I think I hear the term so often in, in any of the schools I've ever worked in, they get to that place of burnout. Um, have you ever experienced those types of struggles, maybe burnout? And if you have or worked with someone that has, what are some ways that a teacher can reset or, or overcome episodes like this? So um, probably about two years into being a special education teacher, I experienced burnout. Um, there's a lot of paperwork that goes along with that. You get to know your students really on a whole different level than you get to know them in a big classroom. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that is a very heavy weight. And um, I was having a really tough year. And the first thing I did was buy a lanyard. Um, <laughs> this is silly, but um, it's at the Finding Nemo lanyard. Uh -huh. And I it had a little Nemo on it. And every day I would just grab Nemo and just say, just keep swimming, just keep swimming. And then um, after I got to the point where swimming was okay, I sat down and I, I looked at my why. Why am I here? Why am I still doing this? There are a million other jobs I could do. Why am I still doing this? And um, rediscovered that I want to help children succeed. I want to help students become amazing people. And then I have a really good teacher friend. And at that time, we began texting each other three great things about the day at the end of the day. Oh, that's cool. And we still do that today. Really? Yes. And it's wonderful. It helps you see the victories you had in the day. And it could be something as small as I got caught up on my grading, <laughs> you know, um, but it, it revisits the day at the end of the day and puts a little positive spin on it. So the next day when you come back, you're coming in with that positive feeling again. Um, and it's amazing. So I would definitely do that. Um, sometimes, you know, we talked about turning off work. Sometimes we have to turn off our personal life too when we're here. And that can be really difficult. Um, and I think um, I'm the first to say I am the queen of my realm, my classroom, and I don't like stepping outside of it because everything's weird. It's not the way I planned it. Um, but while we teach alone in a classroom, we do have a team here in the building and we have people that support us. My first year teaching was rough. Um, I was a mom. I had a ninth grader and a sixth grader. And um, it was the first time I had worked since I had babies. And I was like, holy cow, is this going to be okay? And then at the same time in January, my mother went into the hospital for open heart surgery and never really recovered. And from January to April, she was in the hospital constantly. And I would have to spell my dad. Um, my sister lived in St. George. She was not available to help. And I had to take a lot of time off. And sometimes at the drop of a hat, sometimes mm -hmm. I would go down to be with my dad and my mom and something would happen and I'd be at the hospital till three o'clock in the morning. So I'd come into the building and put my sub plans on Jenny's desk with a note that says, I'm so sorry, I, I can't teach today. There's nothing left in the tank. And people were so supportive here in the building. Other teachers were so helpful. Yeah. Um, Jenny and the administration at that time were great at getting substitutes for me and never making me feel like I was wrong for spending time with my family um, at that time. And, and now, as I go forward, that's kind of like the bottom line indicator for me. And so as I go forward, I'm like, hey, we've done hard things. 
this isn't as hard as the hard things we've done before. And that's also a good way to look at it. This isn't as hard as it used to be and finding those positive spins to keep going. And part of what I hear from that, Cinda, is that it's important to have teacher friends. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, colleagues, teacher friends. And I've never thought about that, but the idea of being present in both of those situations, not just like bringing, you know, turning the work off at home, but turning the home off at work. To me, that, that, that is such a powerful statement. And I think that's something that I, I personally need to work on is just to not only turn off work at home, but turn off home at work. And for me, um, it's kind of weird. I don't really care to work near my house. That drive is so important for me. Um, I have unpacking my day or packing it up so that I can be present for my day. It's really, really important for me. So now we're here at our most favorite part of the show, student question. (laughs) We like the student question. Yes, we do. So this is Leah, and she's in the ninth grade, and she wants to know, what is your favorite event in history that you like to teach and why? Um, probably my favorite that I like to teach is the Boston Massacre because I get such a good reaction from the kids. It's one of the lessons throughout the year that they are 100% engaged in. Um, my favorite event that I've gotten to teach in the last couple of years is World War II. Um, so in the military history class, we go over that one and it's amazing what students already know about it and, and they want to discuss with it and they want to, to make sense of it, to understand how all the Holocaust happened, how people let things happen. And so I love to talk about that as well because it helps shape them. Um, it helps them realize that sometimes sitting back and being quiet isn't the right answer. Um, that horrible things can happen when we just sit back and mind our own business. And so that's a really fun one to teach. My favorite one to study on my own is the Civil War. I really like that one. That's awesome. I, as you're talking and, and as a former history teacher, I just I get so excited. Um, I actually, when I became a history teacher, because I was a music teacher prior to that, that's when I started really getting into a collection of vinyl records And when I first became a history teacher, I couldn't connect to my students. They had this phenomenal, dynamic, long-time history teacher who did these amazing lessons. And I was a first-year history teacher. I was so intimidated. And so lesson after lesson, they would just school me on history topics. They would say, oh, well, when Mr. So-and-so did this, he did this. And when Mr. So-and-so did this, and I just... By the end of like two months, I hated Mr. So-and-so. <laughs> he was the worst. Um, and then I, I started bringing in records and I would start every single class with a record. And, and World War II, the music of World War II was, was my absolute favorite. And so I went into the American um, ambassadors, jazz ambassadors, and we looked at Benny Goodman, Artie Shaw, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey. We looked at... Um, Sachimo and and all of the amazing Dizzy Gillespie and we played their music and we looked at the covers of their records and we talked about styles and trends and then and then that 
opened up a way for us to talk about historical events. But I'm just sitting here listening to you talk about these different historical events that I've got a million lesson plans yeah. burning through my head. I just I want to be a guest on the history podcast. Yeah. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think that we have to trust our intuition like that. You brought in music that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, at one time it, with my eighth graders, we had just finished up um, the War of 1812. And... I wasn't really excited about the next step going in. It's always hard to transition from teaching a war to teaching like the industrial revolution or something. Cause it's not as exciting to the sure. kids. So there's not as much engagement. And, um, I had gone home and was kind of scrolling through Facebook and found a YouTube post of Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam singing, nice. um, imagine in a great big, huge Coliseum in Croatia. And wow. So, you know, he's in a foreign country. They don't all speak English. Mm -hmm. The entire Coliseum was singing that song. Wow. And I cried. Um, For sure. I was like, whoa, I watched it three times and every Uh time I cried harder. And I was like, my kids need to see this. We need to talk about this. So the next day I threw out my lesson plan. I went in. I put the words to imagine on the board. I explained to them about where Eddie Vedder was singing the song and then I let them hear this huge crowd sing this song. And we talked about why do people feel this way? Why does this song resonate with us? Why did John Lennon write it? And, and we talked about how it applies to what we just finished with the War of 1812. And that year I had a student who, um, some of my students are a little tough, a uh-huh. little rough around the edges. And this was one, she was super like, I hate history. I'm yeah. here because I have to be. Mm-hmm. In fact, she told me one time, I like you. I hate this class. <laughs> and I'm like, That's ah. sweet, I guess. <laughs> and, and, you know, she was hit and miss with assignments and hit and miss with participation. Mm-hmm. We did that lesson. And, you know, the War of 1812 hits. Um, there's about, at that time, there was almost a whole semester left because I was seeing the kids every day. And she did every assignment after that. Wow. And she told me later, Mrs. Whipple, actually I was Mrs. Thomas then, she's like, I didn't understand history until we talked about Imagine. And so sometimes those gut feelings that we have, I just can't face this lesson again tomorrow. Find something you're passionate about and introduce it to the kids. It's another way of being authentic, and it's another way of reaching them on a level you can't reach them. This has been an awesome time together. Every podcast, I always try to think, what is the theme? Where is this conversation going? And the the real thing that I'm pulling out from our time together is the idea of being authentic, authentic and present, you know, authentically present Mm -hmm. is what I'm, is what I've heard over and over and over. And I think that is such an amazing attribute you have as a teacher. Um, I think for myself, as I'm leaving our time together, I'm thinking to myself, how can I be more authentically present, present with my students present in my space, wherever that may be, at work or at home, um, or even with my children, going all the way back to the beginning of our discussion, how can I be authentically present in all of those in all of those moments? Um, so what advice do you have, Cinda, for our future teachers and, and our future educators out there? What would you say to them as they're looking to become educators and enter into the workforce? I think they should try it out. I think they should work as a substitute or come in as a, a instructional TA. Um, I, th- I think even just volunteer in a school 
come in and help a teacher just for a little while because being on the other side of the desk is very different. Teaching is nothing like being a student in school. And I think seeing what you're looking at, it's also very different from what we're told in our classes. Um, I remember in particular one professor saying, these kids are so excited to learn and they just can't wait for you to teach them something. And I walked into the classroom and I was like, my eighth graders are not excited to learn. (laughs) What? (laughs) And that's where the curiosity comes in. We have to, I think they do want to learn, but they're real low key about it. And Mm -hmm. it's not cool, Mm -hmm. especially to let your teacher know that you like what they're teaching. And so we have to bring that curiosity in. And um, I think you also need to experience the world you're going to enter before you come in as a teacher. I think just having that understanding of what teenagers are like right now, if you're going into a junior high or a high school, because that's also changed. And I think one of my big takeaways from this, Cinda, has been um, the, the idea of cultivating curiosity. Um, because what we teach really does permeate throughout the rest of their lives, you know, and we should be able to, I mean, I find it really easy with English, but for history and even math and science, we should be able to apply all of these things that they're learning to their daily lives and their real lives. And so why do we have to dictate how they learn those concepts, you know? I love the idea of testing the waters. Me and my family, we just moved here to Utah. We've only been here for about two and a half years now. And one thing that I'm learning um, very quickly is that the ocean is very different <laughs> than a lake. Yes. It's it's very different. My, you know, 70 to 75 degree ocean that's crystal clear in Hawaii is very different than a lake. And so when we got here, I was like, I need to submerge myself <laughs> in water no, you because don't. <laughs> I'm from Hawaii and no. I need, I need this. This is what I need. Jacuzzi. And so... I looked at all the lakes and they just, they were a little bit brown. They're murky. I was like, okay, that's not going to be my first lake experience. So let's go to this place. Everybody says, you got to go to this place. The water is beautiful. It's called Bear Lake. Uh So I drive to Bear Lake. I eat the raspberry shake, you know, drink the raspberry shake. I get there and they're right. It looks just like my ocean. It is blue, crystal blue water. I'm like, oh. This is my ocean. But it doesn't feel. No. <laughs> no. I take my shirt off. I dive in there. Oh, I about no. died. It was the worst <laughs> no. experience I have ever had. It was not my ocean. I froze to death. My teeth were chattering. I had a frozen headache. I, was, I, I think I screamed about three octaves <laughs> up. It was that cold. And so I think the idea um, of of testing the water as a teacher. This is a hard job. Mm-hmm. Granted, it is fulfilling. It is worth every moment. And we've heard some of those stories, but I think it is a great idea. Substitute teach, be a teaching assistant, you know, volunteer in a school. And you can do some of those things. They have lots of those programs, even as, even as a high school student, you know, but test the water yeah. because you might dive in. Mm-hmm. And it might not be what you think it is. And we've heard um, some sage educators on this show yeah. who have said, we don't want you mm-hmm. if this is not what you want to do. Yes. We really don't. Um, that saying, if you can't do, then teach. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Mm-mm. Teaching is a skill and you have to love it. You have to be passionate about it. 
right? You have to test the water because there are a lot of people that love Bear Lake and I'm not one of them. (laughs) And I have not been back since. And he tested the water. I tested the water. (laughs) Um, So we're at the last question. Our time has been well spent and it's been a, it's been a phenomenal time visiting with you, Cinda. Um, I wish I could do this with every single teacher in our school. It would be awesome. So could you leave us with an inspiring thought, a favorite quote, or just some last words of encouragement as we sign off? So my favorite quote is, and into the forest I go to lose my mind and find my soul. Um, John Muir said that, and that's really where I reset. And, And I think it's so important, no matter what your profession is, that you find a place where you reset, where you refuel, where you replenish and become who you are. Um, I think authenticity is important everywhere. And then my, my second favorite quote, and this is the one I have up in my classroom, is um, a person is about as happy as they choose to be, and that's Abraham Lincoln. And that's something I remind myself of all the time. If I've had a bad day, well, I get to choose how I'm going to act with that. In my options classes, that's something I talk with my kids about. You get to choose how you feel when you're here. Mm -hmm. You get to take a second and say, okay, this happened, but it doesn't have to make this a bad day. And so those are my two favorites. I love that. Yeah, it's a choice. Absolutely. Thank you, Cinda. Yep. Well, folks, that's all the time we have for now. Thank you, Cinda, for visiting with us today. This truly has been time well spent. Till next month, I'm Micah Hirokawa. And I'm Brian Clark. And from the lounge, remember, every voice counts. Make sure we're listening. We'll see ya. Take care. The following podcast has been brought to you by Syracuse Arts Academy, learning through the arts. For more information, please visit syracuseartsacademy.org. This episode was sponsored by Use Maple Garden Restaurant, located in Historic Union Station. You can find the Teacher's Lounge anywhere you listen to podcasts available on all platforms. Tune in for next month's episode.